love him or hate him, you can't live without him. Jim Chapman on 94.9 FM CHRW. And it being Wednesday, we welcome to the studio Jeff Schlemmer and Bob Metz. And uh, this is an opportunity for me to thank Jeff for stepping in at the last minute and filling in for me last week. I appreciate that. Um, and little different uh, perspective uh, doing the whole thing of course you've done the show before you've hosted the show before yeah yeah but it was great talking to Bob though finding out more about his uh, philosophical background and so on there you go yeah, nobody ever left the two of us alone in a room together <laughs> <laughs> could see where that might be a little bit scary <laughs> guys I want to I want to ask you about I want to do something today that we have seldom done on left right and center in the almost 10 years I think we've been doing this Just about like that. Yeah. Um, we seldom have talked about international issues but we have on occasion we seldom have but there's an international issue out there that I want to ask you guys about and I have to if you'll excuse me I have to do a little preamble here I have to set this up a little bit for our listeners and for you we are seeing today in the international stage uh, a government of Iran that is being deliberately provocative of not only the United States but the European community and, and virtually everybody else on the planet uh, the the Prime Minister has indicated, the leader of Iran has indicated that uh, Iran is proceeding with an, uh, a nuclear power program. He claims that their only goal is to move Iran uh, firmly into the 21st century, uh, to uh, give it a, a, a sound economic footing, to provide the large amounts of electricity that are going to be needed to expand the country. Um, the use of nuclear power in this way is not restricted to Iran. It's uh, being used in this country for the same thing in the United States, in the European community, around the world. But there has also been a lot of speculation and concern about his desire or the desire of the mullahs, the uh, religious clerics who still run the country, to um, acquire nuclear weapons. In that part of the world, nuclear weapons are acquirable. Pakistan managed to get them or develop them, a little of both, I guess. Same with India. Uh, Israel has nuclear weapons, and uh, there's a great deal of concern that Iran may, in fact, be moving in that direction. Just yesterday or the day before, Mr. Uh, Ahmadinejad announced that uh, Iran had, in fact, joined the nuclear club, not by virtue of their possession of a nuclear weapon, but by virtue of the fact that they had successfully enriched uranium, which is a important step both for the peaceful use of uh, nuclear technologies and for the creation of nuclear weapons. Now, there's a fascinating car, uh, column article yesterday written by David Frum in which he said, perhaps we should not be panicking quite so much about what appears to be this renegade regime over there, um, the, uh, constantly announcing new improvements to their military capabilities, a high-speed torpedo the other day, a new longer-range uh, or, or intermediate-range ballistic missile now that they have, working on a long-range uh, ballistic missile. They're doing all sorts of very provocative military things. He said, maybe we should just relax a little bit, that what they're trying to do more than anything is just to flex their muscles on the international stage, draw a little attention to, uh, to Iran, and keep the price of oil high. And certainly on the last, they've definitely managed to do that. They benefit hugely, of course, from high oil prices. In the last few days, there has been some talk, open talk, there's certainly been talk behind closed doors for a long time, about the possibility of a surgical strike against Iran if it becomes apparent that they are indeed actively pursuing nuclear weapons. The feeling is that the Americans don't want them to have them, the European community does not want them to have them, and although China and Russia have been uh, strangely obstructionist when it comes to trying to put pressure on them to stop their nuclear programs, ultimately it's not in their best interest for them to have nuclear weapons either. 
And there's some talk that a, a, a strategic strike might, or tactical strike might be needed, should be used. Americans are the logical ones to do it. The Israelis attacked the, the Iraqi nuclear re- reactors at Osirak, what, 10, 12, 14 years ago? And, 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 yeah. But that long ago, was it? Yeah, 20 years ago. 2022, 20, 23, 24. How many years ago was that? A long time ago. Time. Anyway, <laughs> they did it, and, uh, and there has been little, if any, nuclear presence in Iraq since. The Israelis do not have the equipment to do the same thing to Iran. It's just that much too far, and the sites are that much too hardened. So the Americans would be the logical ones. So, having said all of this, I want to ask you, my guests, Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer, do you think David Frum is on to anything here, that this may be a lot of stuff and nonsense from a power that really is not a threat to us? Uh, Or is it possible that... uh, a tactical strike to strip them of any nuclear capability they might be developing could be beneficial to the rest of the world in the long run. Mr. Metz, I'll start with you. That would have been an interesting question to ask in the 1930s when everyone was talking about this strange new fellow in Germany named Adolf Hitler, you know, and he was posturing and and making himself sound like he was a threat, and everyone was saying, oh, it's nothing to worry about. They're just uh, flexing their muscles, right? It's not something you can know, really, before the fact. Um, I look at the situation in Iran. I see uh, it's a totalitarian country. Therefore, most of what they say is suspect. We know that. They well, have, well, I should say the, though, their leader was elected, quote, democratically. It was a vote. It's by not democratic. Elections are not about democracy. Elections are about the source of the authority of the government, which is not the people in Iran. That's what it's about. It doesn't matter what every every type of government has elections. And that's not democracy. We think it is, and that's why we're deteriorating into those kind of countries. But that's another issue. Um, but basically, they've, they've, they've stated openly that they have hostile intentions to both Israel, the United States, and even some of the, their, their Arab neighbors. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's like a guy holding the gun and saying, stick him up or else, you know. And you, you can sit back and say, oh, he's not serious. He's not really going to shoot me if I move, you know. But that's a chance you have to take. Uh, you mentioned as well that they're disrupting oil prices and things of that nature and that, that they benefit. I don't think they benefit economically by raising the oil prices, but they do benefit politically. How not economically, though? Every because, time the price goes up, it's more money in their wallet. Well, pockets. that's what you would think, right? But that's not the way economics works. Prices d- do not determine profits. A price may rise incredibly on an item, but the person selling it loses more money because they're not selling as many units. If you look at a supply and demand and production curve, you'll notice that it's not a linear equation. It's three-dimensional. So that if I raise my price of, say, I'm selling widgets, and I raise double the price, I might have one-third of the sales. Yeah, but, right? I, but that's not what's happening here. The demand No, that's, the, the demand that's why it's right. politically advantageous to them. Because it raises the price everywhere, because they know right now there is a limited demand or a, a limited supply versus the demand in the world. It's been like that. We've been on pretty uh, bad policies in terms of the you know Western democracies haven't put together a new oil oil rig or company. I understand for about thirty forty years. Well, we can now though take the various fuels that are that are distilled from the oil that is available to us and put them into cruise missiles and B two bombers and send them in to eliminate the nuclear threat in. Iran. We could. Should we do that? Well, that's... that's or, or under what criteria, under what circumstances should we do that? Well, you shouldn't be doing it just to get the price of oil down. <laughs> um, that, that wouldn't be the reason. You'd have to perceive a very real and, and present threat. And uh, certainly the government hasn't gone out... The, the Iran government hasn't gone out of its way to, to, to make itself look friendly to the neighborhood, let us say. 
So that to me is very, you know, tremendously foreboding. And I think that this uh, pressure and situation, where it's not the West, it's the only concerned party here with respect to Iran. It's also the Soviet Union in particular. And when you see the other big guys, as worried as we are, you better, somebody knows something. And that's sort of the way I get that sense, you know, like who's bothered by this, who isn't. <laughs> uh, Jeff, let me switch to you then, uh, the, the sort of double-barreled question. Uh, should we pay attention, take heed of Mr. Frum's comments that he thinks that this perhaps is, is more uh, more smoke and mirrors than, than substance, and, and or B, would you see any scenario under which it would be legitimate to launch a preemptive strike against Iran's uh, nuclear capabilities? Well, I guess the first thing is that uh, I think that that he's correct in the sense that there's always some kind of a threat out there and there's always some kind of um, government or leaders that are destabilizing, whether it's North Korea or whether, uh, you know, there were times that the USSR seemed pretty scary when they had a lot of missiles aimed at us and so on. So certainly it's, you don't want to overreact to something like that. On the other hand, uh, I look to, um, like the first Gulf War to me was an example of very effective global um, policing, if you like, where uh, George Bush Sr. went out and and put together a a real coalition of nations around a common interest uh, and and, and essentially had the support of most of the world, if you like, uh, for a particular action. And I think that where people have become more skeptical recently is the the perception that the United States has become more isolated and and kind of prone to using its power as the, quote, only superpower to pursue goals that everybody doesn't agree on. Uh, I think that, that, that I would think that most countries in the world, if pressed, would say we'd rather not have Iran be a nuclear power. And it's a question to me of sort of how do you put that together? How do you organize a coalition that uh, that supports that? And it may be the case that, practically speaking, you're right, that the only people with the technology to do a, a surgical type of strike would be the United States ultimately. But I would hope that if they did it, it would be based on some kind of a much broader coalition. If not the UN, then somebody, some, some group where you can say, uh, we have a coalition that doesn't consist of a bunch of little islands in the Pacific, but genu- genuinely does consist of China, the USSR, you know, uh, most of the European nations and so on. Um, but but it, it is also interesting in the sense that, uh, as you point out, that the current uh, leader in Iran was apparently uh, democratically elected. The leader before him was much more friendly to the West, and the thinking was that the mullahs were losing some of their power over the people, and they were becoming more... Um, Uh, less fundamentalist religious, if you like, and becoming more citizens of the world again. Uh, And, of course, Persians historically have been extremely sophisticated people. Uh, And it seemed like they were coming along. And then they apparently chose a guy who sounds like he's uh, nuts. You know, uh, not to put too fine a point on. <laughs> yeah, and uh, but having said that, you know, I, I haven't heard about massive voter fraud. I don't know how how the system works there, but I know that they elected some people who were not at all friends of the uh, of the religious uh, right there, if you like, of the fundamentalists. Uh, and again, it looked for a long time like they were coming along, uh, coming coming back to be wanting to be more internationalist. Is it possible? Do you think? Uh, well, let me back up a little bit. There there appears to be, and this this may indeed be a, a misleading appearance. There appears to be a reluctance on the part of human beings to use nuclear weapons. They've only been used twice in history. They were both relatively low-yield uh, weapons and new weapons at the time that were that were held, although there's been a lot of revisionist thinking about this, but they were held at the time to be a means of saving significant numbers of lives, that they could end the war quickly and thus save a lot of lives. And there's a lot of research today, the revisionists notwithstanding, to suggest that that that, that was a valid analysis. However, 
since then, in spite of the fact that some very shaky fingers have been on the nuclear trigger from time to time. You look at some of the leaders of the Soviet Union, some of the Chinese leaders, uh, Pakistan and India. Uh, to a lesser extent, I think France and, and, and Britain, it's hard to think of a time when we were too worried about either of them pushing the button for anything. But certainly the opportunity and the options have been there a number of times over the years, and everybody has managed to refrain. One would hope, because they recognize that that, that is one battle you simply cannot win, um, but are we naive to hope that that might be the case here, to hope that even if Iran does manage to get nuclear weapons, that they're not going to immediately put them on a rocket and name them at Tel Aviv? Bob? Um, you know, you're talking about the reluctance to use nukes and whether they're a practical weapon in any case. Um, it's interesting. I happen to know something about this because I worked on a project in the 80s on, on uh, nuclear uh, bombs and things like that, when London ha- actually had a plebiscite, this city of London, to declare itself nuclear-free. So therefore, we're okay now. No bombs will drop on yes, us. Yes, I remember that. Okay. So uh, I was working for a newspaper at the time. I was actually the editor, London Metro Bulletin, and we did a nuclear survival issue in which we got the most up-to-date information on what was going on, and we discovered to our chagrin that we knew more than the Canadian government did on the matter. Okay. So, and the scary part is that, and I, maybe I shouldn't be saying this on the air, but nukes are almost practical in some way. They're not as destructive as people think, mm-hmm. although if you're near the epicenter, forget it. Nothing's mm-hmm. going to survive. We did a scenario over the city of London. Uh, the, the most optimal explosion of a nuclear weapon is two megatons set off at one mile high. Mm-hmm. And that creates a shock wave that comes down from the explosion and flattens everything under it. It's more powerful than a ground explosion doesn't have radioactive fallout. Only ground explosions put up the radioactive fallout. Those are needed to hit bunkers and, and nuclear, like, you know, if you had a missile site, then, then you'd use it. But to our surprise, we found out that if even at the maximum, at the two megaton, if you make a bigger bomb, by the way, it doesn't get proportionally larger. Most of the energy goes up. Mm-hmm. So that's why two, two megatons is op- optimal. Um, that sat over City Hall here, that was our scenario, if you lived in White Oaks and, and were in your basement, you would survive. You'd be okay. And even a lot of people closer to town would be okay. And all they'd have to do is know not to come out of their basements for about three weeks. And after that, you're, you you could get by, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's, But nobody wants to even think about, quote, the survivability of something mm-hmm. like that. Now, how many governments are aware of this? How many governments are really aware? You know, you'd think in a country as compact as Israel, for example, to use nukes in its own neighborhood would be insane, right? But it might not be, you know, depending, on, again, on weather conditions and mm-hmm. a lot of other things. So I don't know. And, and, and you're looking at a situation. The Trade Center, re, 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 when it collapsed on 9-11, released uh, what I understand the equivalent energy of a small nuke, mm-hmm. although it didn't have the impact from a shockwave and all that stuff. Yeah. But uh, so it's not unheard of. And, you know, if, when I think of what New York City looked like after the buildings collapsed it looked like a nuke had hit it like the dust was everywhere right over the whole island you know the manhattan everything if there were a headline in the paper tomorrow that says uh, uh, iran successfully tests nuclear device and headline the next day that says uh, america takes out iran's nuclear facility would either of you raise a hand in protest 
Well, I guess the first thing is that I, I, I would be astonished if they could do it that easily because every time we're promised that they can do something surgically and so on, it gets a lot more complicated. And, and the situation in Iraq in 82 where they were able to use F-16s to go in was fairly unprecedented. And I can imagine that the people defending it, uh, defending Iran, are pretty aware of what happened there. So uh, if somebody were to say, yes, they've got a discrete building and it's a bunker and they've got a thing that can wipe it out would it be would it, would i shed tears no not particularly but to me again so many times the military have over promised what then what they could deliver on so it's a question of okay what are the consequences now uh and again to me that's a reason why you would want a broad coalition because among other things we know that iran you know back in the 80s was not averse to their human wave attacks uh, mm-hmm. during the war with iraq uh like you're gonna have a lot of very mad people doing a lot of things uh in response to that uh, another issue, though, that, that I've often thought about is that uh, as our technology improves, uh, it's inevitable that more and more countries are going to have the ability to build atomic weapons, and it's just astonishing to me so far with the collapse of the Soviet Union that none of them have gone missing and turned up in the wrong hands. Well, in fact, some of them have gone missing, but they haven't turned up. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just, uh, just uh, as a matter of, of, of probability, I just find it staggering that that didn't happen. I, fi- I find it staggering that a whole empire could collapse and that the people who were in charge of these things would choose to concede essential defeat rather than set them off somewhere. I think the uh, main reason that is, though, is not so much a benevolence of the people who who have these weapons and don't want to use them, but a recognition that there are a lot of other people around them just as not benevolent as them with equivalent weapons. Good point. We're going to pause for a second. We'll be back with more on the news. Our Schlemmer and Metz with us on Left, Right, and Center. Jeff Schlemmer and Bob Metz with us today. I want to take the focus off the international for a moment or two. The story a little closer to home, and I alluded to it earlier today. There's talk of uh, trying to build slates for the municipal election campaign, and I've already said I think it's, uh, you know, the principle certainly, uh, well, there's a principle. <laughs> you, you can do it. Um, to accomplish the aims which have been outlined by some of the people in the paper, you, you can't do, because it, what they're trying to do is to limit the number of people who will run um, by bringing a number of disparate groups under one umbrella and putting them behind one candidate, and that's lovely, but in a municipal election, you're always going to get, I think, you're always going to get a multiplicity of candidates. Um, I'm going to ask you each about that, whether you agree or disagree with that statement. And then I've got another question for you. And, Jeff, what about you? Do you think we're always going to have a, a number of people running, even if we try to restrict them onto slates? And I don't mean officially restrict them, but sort of artificially restrict them. Yeah, well, and partly I think it's because, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's uh, just historic uh, precedent or whether there's actually any laws that deal with this, but we don't have party politics in municipal government in Ontario. I gather that in uh, BC they do, for instance, and they run, you know, your liberal candidate for mayor uh, and so on. And and in some respects, uh, I think it's uh, kind of refreshing that we don't. There's a there's a almost um, let me just say uh, I, I think of the. The uh, concept uh, from Victorian days of the uh, enlightened uh, amateur who was the botanist or who was this, that, and the other thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, people who, who loved something, studied it, uh, uh, were involved in it, but didn't expect to make a living at it. Uh, and that, to me, is kind of municipal politics, or at least the way we do it, which, again, is, is kind of an antidote for uh, corporate uh, um, party-based uh, leadership that we have provincially and federally. There's something almost endearing about that. But I think, by definition, it means that you're going to have a lot of people who will come out because they, they an issue grabs them and they feel strongly about it, and they're going to come out and exercise their franchise uh, to or exercise their right to stand for, for office, which I think is very healthy, but it does make it very hard to elect a slate, uh, I think. Um, 
But the other thing, as you point out, is that the more people that run, the more likely I think that the name recognition becomes the biggest factor because it is so hard to get publicity. Mm-hmm. For one thing, you can't donate money to a, to, a, to a municipal political candidate, so it's very hard to fundraise. And um, so, again, name recognition uh, is, you know, probably the most important factor in most elections. Bob? Um, I, th- I don't know, but I think I might be among the first people to have actually tried this in the city of London. Jim Montag and I got together back in, was that the 80s or 90s? No, I'm not sure. And formed the London Middlesex Taxpayers Coalition. Remember that, yes. And uh, we ran a, quote, slate of candidates municipally during that time. Now, it wasn't a slate based on principles that you might think of a, as a political party. Not all the people were in, in, under one fold, in fact. And what we looked for was candidates that shared uh, the taxpayers' point of view more, you know. And and so they weren't necessarily... I was one of the candidates that ran for uh, Board of uh, Education, didn't get elected. But uh, Robert Vaughn, my co-partner, mm-hmm. did. He got elected twice very handily. I know you were in one of those elections, too. Mm-hmm. Now, I think what we did, if I recall, we ran newspaper ads and put out cards endorsing a list of candidates mm-hmm. who would all think that we thought would you know bring a cohesive yeah. point of view together, even though they might not be on side with us on everything, okay? I remember some of uh, Robin Ainsley got elected. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was on that. And I, I don't know, I think maybe your name was on that list, too. Yeah, I don't know, I, do you ever I, recall I honestly that? I don't remember. I, yeah. I do remember that initiative, but yeah. I don't remember whether I was on the list or not. But we found it was nominally successful. One or two candidates got in there that never got in there before. Unfortunately, at different times. Uh, it would have been better, for example, on the Board of Ed, if uh, Robin Ainsley and Robert Vaughn had been elected on the board at the same time, though, so they, they served different uh, periods on the board, mm-hmm. right? So one won in the previous election and then dropped out. If the two of them had been there, they could have carried each other's motions, which is a major factor. You get two people in there, you can do a lot. Mm-hmm. If you've only got one person, kind of doesn't need, never gets a second, you know, yeah. and, and you really need that second to even get a motion heard. But um, other than that, I don't really uh, see. I think un- informally, rather, I think it's always been sort of a assumed slate of candidates. Most people in the know know who's affiliated with the Liberals, Conservatives, NDP, or whoever on the municipal level, even though it's not official. What I really love, though, is the idea of trying something new. Like, I, I, I love the fact that Imagine London has come forward and is saying, you know, we'd like to try some new stuff. Uh, you know, and, and uh, whether I would support everything that they stand for, I doubt, I doubt that I would. A lot of it I would, but some of it I wouldn't. Um, but again, it's just, it's just invigorating. Let's pause for a second and invigorate ourselves with these important messages. We'll be back with more on the news hour. And one final query for our guests today relative to municipal politics again, and I did talk about this before you arrived. It's, it's an old issue in politics, and that is the issue of residence. Uh, there have actually been elections in this city where it's been an issue, where someone has run in a ward that, where they didn't live, and someone in that ward has made an issue of that and said, I don't know why you're running here. I, I, I live here. I run here. You should run where you live. There's a long tradition of that not being the case. In this ward, uh, we've already, or this election, we're already seeing that apparently Susan Eagle is going to run in a ward where she does not live, uh, and probably other people as well. I don't know. I, I, from the new boundaries, I'm not exactly sure who. My guess is there will be a lot of people running in, in wards where they do not live. Is this a problem for either of you? Bob, we'll come back to you. Not for me. Uh, never has been. In fact, it concerns me if it if it's perceived as a problem, because that means people will see their politicians as interest grabbers. You know, you're mm-hmm. going to do, do something for me rather than looking at the larger picture. And when every politician
politicians got that in mind, he doesn't care about the rest of the city. You know, that's why we're supposed to have a board of control mm-hmm. to, to bring that broader yes. view across. And that's the danger, I think, even in the in the riding new distributions because they're more interest oriented, which is the thing that Imagine London likes. Well, that's what they wanted, right? And that's that's a, that's a pr- sort of sort of a prescription for division and, and, and conflict because uh, neighborhood X is going to complain that they didn't get their fair part of the budget because neighborhood Y got it and et cetera, et cetera. And um, if that's what they're thinking about, then I think it, it could be the reverse of what we think. I wouldn't think it w- would be necessarily a good idea. It doesn't bother me that uh, uh, if, it's a, if a candidate's good, I don't care if they live in the ward. If they're bad, I wish they didn't live in the ward. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, what about you? Well, Any different take on that at all? No, it's the same thing, basically, and particularly this election where they've split up the wards. Uh, and uh, as, as you know, that I work on Susan's campaign. I can declare that right off the bat. and good friend of Susan's, and I know that she's represented uh, uh, the area that will be Ward 9, I guess it is, for nine years, that there are all kinds of interesting things going on there that she feels very strongly about and wants to continue to to be active in um so you know uh, the fact that the that the wards have split this time does that mean she should not then be able to continue to work on these issues that are important to her in lambeth and uh, byron i say no who cares there's an argument to be made too that uh it is it is inimicable to the public interest to say that a person cannot run that that you as an individual should be able to support anyone you choose in the municipal context that mm-hmm. you shouldn't you shouldn't be restricted as a voter remember but, if you don't if you don't uh, live in that ward or riding you can't vote at, even if you're a candidate mm-hmm. you cannot vote for yourself you mm-hmm. have to go back to your home riding and vote for whoever the candidate is there mm-hmm. So. That's right. And, and if, for instance, you, uh, you live in, uh, in Byron Lambeth, as an example, and you happen to like uh, Susan's politics and she chooses not to run there, then you can't get her onto city council, even though you might think she's going to be good on social issues for the city or whatever, you're, you're, you're shut out. Um, which is too bad in a way, although it, it does remind me that in the United States, of course, you can't be president unless you're born there, which I find to be the most astonishing thing in a country of immigrants. Uh, but uh, I gather that Arnold Schwarzenegger's supporters are lobbying to change that. They are indeed, and there is some constant, some sense that there's a constitutional, uh, what's the word I want, uh, a t- a leaning there that the original drafters of that had did not co- did not comprehend the idea, or not expect the idea that it would last forever and it would prevent anybody who hadn't been born there. It was it was designed to address a specific problem, that being wealthy Europeans who might come to the new country with tons of money and basically buy their way into the presidency. Right. That's no, what I thought it had a lot to do with the fact that the president, in addition to being the president, is the commander-in-chief of the of the military. I don't know how, but why. But there are all kinds and, of, of generals who are, who are not born in uh, the United States. Shalakashvili, no the most... The, the, right, the but the joint chiefs the guy. boss. <laughs> you know what well, I mean? Well, I don't know if it's just the joint chiefs. I'm just I don't know what the history of it is exactly. But I've heard that argued. Well, it, it could be. That may be reason. part of it as well. Yeah. yeah. In any case, Arnold's guys apparently are very quietly trying to push this uh, on a number of fronts uh, and, and saying that it would be good for, not certainly just not for Arnold, but there's a lot of good people who might uh, be able to serve and serve with distinction who are who are eliminated because of the place of their birth. Well, there was a British Prime Minister born in Canada, I recall. I can't remember which one it was. But again, like, why would you not want to take the best person you can get who wants to do the job? Uh, Bonner Law, wasn't it? Wasn't it? I can't recall. I can't recall. Uh, mm-hmm. and I, and I I remember there, was, uh, there was a Canadian Prime Minister who was born in Britain, I believe, as well. 
So Bennett, maybe? Oh, se- no, several of them. Okay. Are. Yeah. yeah. So again, like, what's the big deal? And, I th- it, it's got to be a historical anachronism. And again, in the United States, uh, and don't forget, Canada is part of the British Empire and the British Commonwealth. Well, so yeah, it's not as far a stretch as yeah, but with the United States. That's not the reason. It's like who cares? It's like take the best people you can get. Well, I happen to think I'd make a heck of an American president. Yeah. Even though, even though I, I vote for you. Run, <laughs> even though I can't run. Thank you, guys. Always a pleasure when Thanks Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer drop by on. Wednesdays for Left, Right, and Center, and it's always a pleasure to have you with us, too, on the program. Uh, we will be back tomorrow, good Lord willing, at 11 o'clock with the next edition of the Jim Chapman News Hour, and uh, we'll look forward to having you join us there. Don't forget, Friday's Contact Friday. We'll be looking for your emails. We've got lots of them now, but we'll be sharing a bunch of them with you on Friday, so there's still a chance for you to participate in the program. Send them along to jimchapman at rogers.com, or check out our website, jimchapman.ca. Love to hear from you, however your message managed to get to it, manages to get to us. All oh, the boys are rocking now. The crack staff is leaping around the control room. As I said, 11 more right here on CHRW. That's 94.9 FM. Tell your friends. For Bob and Jeff, it's Jim saying, please take care of each other. Mind how you go, and God bless. Bye-bye. I'll just...